Back in December, a small group of cyber warriors landed in Ukraine as part of a stealthy mission. It was less than three months before Russia would invade. Russia has for weeks been massing troops and tanks along the Ukrainian border, prompting... The group was from U.S. Cyber Command, the cyber arm of the military. And they'd been deployed to help Ukraine hunt for Russian malware in their networks. Remember, this was a time when no one seemed sure whether troops on the border were part of a head fake. My best guess is still that he's not going to invade. Or were preparation for war. We have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week. A major in the Marine Corps led the U.S. team. And her guidance was this. Hey, go help them and make sure that they're ready in terms of anything that may occur. That's the head of the NSA and Cybercom, General Paul Nakasone. She called back within the first two weeks and said, hey, instead of coming home for the holidays, we're going to be here for a while. It ended up being more than a while. The teams actually stayed for three months, and they just kept getting bigger. Begins with 10, and then we, we, we surged to, to well over 30. Uh, and so we, we had flooded the zone. Given Russia's hacking history in Ukraine before the war, people naturally expected Russian hackers to take down Ukraine's power grid or to hobble its communication systems. That didn't happen. And Nakasone was careful not to give all the credit to the hunt teams. While I would certainly not say that's the, that's the key reason, I think it's a contributing factor. You know, having 10 uh, folks on the ground that are tied back to our command and our agency, uh, that's a power that I think is really helpful. This is the kind of work Nakasone talked about last week at the Council on Foreign Relations in D.C. He was joined by CISA Director Jen Easterly at an event focused on the importance of collaboration during a war that combines cyber with more conventional forces. And the event was moderated... Uh, thank you so much. ...by me. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. And this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, highlights from a rare sit-down with two of the nation's leaders in cyber. We talked about everything from Ukraine network defense... They've been the cyber sandbox for the past 10 years. ...to collaborating with private companies and allies. If you're going to operate in the space, we've got to operate in a manner that can share rapidly. So that means, for the most part, it has to be unclassified. To what to expect in the run-up to midterm elections. You know, so we, we still have 29 days till election, and so every single day is a day that we're very, very focused on this. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Good afternoon, everyone. If you could please take your seats, we'd like to get started. General Nakasone spoke first. 
First of all, thanks to the Council of Foreign Relations, and really nice to be back with Jen, my colleague and good friend. Jen Easterly, director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, was sitting next to him on stage. Uh, let me just say a couple of things, and Paul can weigh in here. Um, the pair have been colleagues in one way or another for years. They actually worked together on convincing the Pentagon that America needed a command dedicated to cyber, not just to defend U.S. networks, but also to launch offensive cyber operations against America's adversaries. Since that time, Cybercom has hobbled ISIS's media operations. They've taken down servers Russia was using to sow disinformation. And a few years ago, they hacked Iranian networks that were digitally tracking and targeting ships in the Persian Gulf. You know, how do you judge your success? That's Nakasone again. Right. You judge your success at staying ahead of your adversary. Right. That's something we do very, very well at the agency and the command in trying to figure out the next axis, the next tool, the next operation. With every conflict, there's a lesson. The war with Ukraine, for example, has shown that Russian hackers haven't been particularly good at coming up with spur-of-the-moment cyber operations. And that collaboration, whether it's between Ukraine and the U.S. or Ukraine and American tech companies, is a key component in cyber battles. Now, those hunt teams Nakasone sent to Ukraine back in December, they aren't new. In fact, he said there have been more than three dozen similar hunt teams dispatched to 20 different countries in the past three years alone. But the way the U.S. is using them now is a little different. First lesson learned, presence matters. We learned that again in terms of not only were we able to assist Ukraine in terms of the networks they looked at, but interestingly enough, as you have a presence on the ground, all the malware that's coming in, it's coming to this team in Kyiv. We talked to someone after the event who told us the Cybercom hunt teams are doing important work. But the problem is that it stops when they leave. The American teams aren't there long enough to teach allies how to hunt for malware by themselves. So, in the case of the Ukrainians, for example, they end up being more reactive to attacks when they happen instead of preventing them from happening in the first place. Sending hunt teams abroad has worked for American cyber defense because operators return with a wealth of information about what the adversary is up to. It becomes like an early warning system for the U.S. Here's what the adversary is doing over there. Let's prepare for that before it gets here. Which, Jen Easterly said, is where CISA would naturally step in. We've been working with the Ukrainian Computer Emergency Response Team, known as CERT, because we serve as U.S. CERT. But our partners from Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, the Czech Republic, to essentially get ahead of potential cyber activity. By working with CISA equivalents around the world, cyber operators working for the Allies have been essentially deputized. Everyone knows what to look for, the new malware variant or the undiscovered vulnerability. And that means people guarding networks around the world, people defending those endpoints, are on alert for something specific. We're talking 400 million, 1.5 billion endpoints that now have the information that this malware is being used. And think about that if you are an adversary producing these type of tools. Suddenly with the work of, you know, CISA and Cyber Command and NSA, we have that ability working with the private sector that's so critical to be able to provide that information. In fact, we've already seen how much the private sector can help spot critical hacks before they metastasize. One of the most consequential attacks against the U.S. in years was discovered by a cybersecurity company scrubbing their own servers. Remember SolarWinds? Russian hackers got into this management software program 
and it gave them access to the networks of some 18,000 SolarWinds customers, including, embarrassingly, U.S. government entities like the Treasury and the Department of Homeland Security. I don't think it was lost on anybody that SolarWinds was first discovered by FireEye, a private sector company, and they're very likely to see malicious activity here at home on critical infrastructure. Nakasone, the leader of an organization that people used to joke was so secretive, the letters NSA actually stood for no such agency. He says he's come around to the idea that information about adversary cyber efforts is more powerful when it's shared. I think we've also figured out if you're going to operate in the space, we've got to operate in a manner that can share rapidly. So that means for the most part, it has to be unclassified. I think we've gotten much better at sanitizing the information because it's not necessarily, you know, what the information is saying a lot of times. For us, it's where it's coming from. So is the classified part that who did it, the who done it part of it, as opposed to what it is? So do, do you, what is it that you're declassifying? A lot of times it's how we obtain the, the information. So sources and methods are put aside, but here you can find this on this. So we all, yeah, exactly. So we're always very concerned about our sources and methods. But then to my point, I think what we have done across the intelligence community, and I think done very, very well, is to take a look at, are there other ways that, that this information could be obtained? And if it is, you know, is it really necessary to, you know, to classify it as such? So in other words, if, for example, NSA finds some malware and Microsoft does too, why not let Microsoft just tell everyone? Then no one has to worry about declassifying it. When we come back, bracing for the next cyber attack. We could see cascading attacks from Ukraine that affect other things. And so we absolutely need to be vigilant. We have to keep our shields up. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Back in March, the Justice Department indicted four Russian nationals for their alleged role in targeting thousands of energy company networks around the world. Prosecutors said hackers linked to the Russian defense ministry installed backdoors and tried to drop malware on the networks for use later. Easterly said they're still trying to do that. Now, we know the Russian playbook, and we've been working very closely with the energy sector, but we are not at a place where we should be push, putting our shields down. The environment is very difficult. The Russians are very unpredictable. Their back is up against the wall. We've seen these horrific kinetic attacks against civilian infrastructure. And we may be seeing a lot worse coming. Have we had close calls? <laughs> so I think we've seen, certainly from what we get from our critical infrastructure partners, we have seen an uptick in things like reconnaissance. In other words, bad actors scanning systems to see if they aren't patched or have vulnerabilities that haven't been discovered. 
We see scanning all the time. I mean, just all, to, the all the time we are looking at and seeing scanning. This is why this campaign against malware, I think, is so important. Being able to stay ahead of the adversary. Which, again, Nakasone said, requires some teamwork, not just from the military, but from the civilian sector, too. What are they using? If they're using that, let's share it with a, a series of, you know, cybersecurity firms to have them rip it apart and see if they can attribute it. And then if they can attribute it, or if they can't, let's go ahead and publish it. All that said, it's almost inevitable that something will get through. And for a brief moment last week, people thought something finally had. Some of the nation's largest airports today, including DIA and LaGuardia, have been targets for cyber attacks. More than a dozen websites for major airports, including LAX and Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson, were temporarily knocked offline. Maybe because we've been girding ourselves for some sort of cyber reprisal ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, things got a little overblown with the airports. Tonight, some of the nation's biggest airports are scrambling to protect their websites. It happened after a group called KillNet urged its followers to participate. Pro-Russian hackers now claiming responsibility. The hackers just got into the public websites of LAX and O'Hare in Atlanta Hartsfield. But it was a simple DDoS attack. It didn't have any effect on flights. The distributed denial of service attacks were a nuisance at best. That's Jen Easterly again. We were in touch with our state and local colleagues last week. We were in touch with the airports over the weekend. Yes, there were some website defacements, uh, but at the end of the day, there were no operational impacts, and that's the important thing. Nothing that impacted the critical services or the airports. Of course, the elephant and donkey in the room is November and the midterm elections. And this gets us back to hunt teams. They don't just look for malware and sinister cyber tools. In recent years, they've also been looking for something a little more nuanced, the telltale signs of influence operations. And Nakasone said less than a month before the midterms, he isn't seeing anything like that yet. In terms of influence, we are seeing no uh, significant indications of, uh, you know, attacks that uh, are being planned right now. But we have sent a number of hunt forward teams across very select countries to look at what our adversaries might be doing. And so far, he says, they aren't seeing anything new. Have we seen any new tools? Is there any new tradecraft they might be utilizing? Are there new operational places that they are running out of? Um, and the answer to that is? Uh, so not yet. Uh, but again, that's, you know, so we, we still have 29 days till election. And so every single day is a day that we're very, very focused on this. Then again, it may be too early to tell. Around this time in the election cycle two years ago, U.S. Cybercom launched an operation against a notorious Russian ransomware gang called TrickBot. They knocked them offline to make sure they wouldn't be able to attack U.S. networks during the election. Cybercom hacked into their command and control servers and made it impossible for TrickBot's leaders to connect to them. While the operation had little effect on the group's long-term prospects, TrickBot is back to full strength now. That wasn't really the point. The point was to kneecap the group so they couldn't meddle in U.S. elections. At the event last week, Nakasone didn't give any indication that something similar might be underway now, just weeks before the midterm elections. Then again, he's from the NSA, and it's his job not to tell me. This is Click Here. Protests in Iran over the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini have reached their fourth week. 
She was arrested last month for allegedly violating Iran's hijab policy, and then she died in police custody. Dozens of demonstrators are thought to have been killed in government crackdowns across the country since then. And that crackdown is being felt outside Iran, too. As Click Here's Sean Powers explains, hackers working for the authorities there are taking aim at journalists, academics, and researchers with some ham-handed phishing campaigns. Masa Almarandani has standards for hackers who try to send her phishing emails. Like, why can't they properly use Google and figure some of this stuff out? Why are they so sloppy? Oh, so sloppy and so obvious. A few months ago, Masa got this email that was supposed to be from a journalist she knew. The signature box on the email said Washington Post. Only trouble? The journalist didn't work there anymore. He joined the New York Times. They hadn't quite updated um, his like current workplace. Masa knew she was being fished, no question about it. Someone wanted her to click on a link, let them put malware on her computer, and then steal her passwords. So I, I was like, oh, this is fun. I want to like reply and engage in a back and forth and see where this goes. It's not your typical response to a phishing email. But Masa at this point is used to this sort of thing. She's a researcher at Article 19. It's this uh, human rights organization, and she specializes in Iran. And she says they're trying to hack her all the time. So after a little back and forth. I ended up just tweeting what this happened. And her tweet caught the attention of a cybersecurity company and this woman. My name is Shara DeGrippo. I'm the vice president of threat research and detection at Proofpoint. Sherrod and her team decided they would try to trace Masa's email back to its source. After doing a little digging, they figured out that Masa had been targeted by a group called TA-453. They're linked to the Iranian government. And they may be better known by their other name, Charming Kitten. Get it? Iran, Persian, cat. And it might be adorable, but for the fact that the group hacks for Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. And Sherrod says they tend to target diplomats, academics, journalists, and, you guessed it, human rights workers. Which explains how Masa got mixed up with them. Here's Sherrod again. They pretend to be someone looking into issues around the Middle East. And a lot of times they offer to get on a Zoom call. Now, you might think, why would a cyber espionage actor out of Iran be able to easily get on a Zoom call? Well, generally, they don't actually follow through with the call. They offer it and then send some kind of credential harvesting link, an attempt to get the username and password of their target. Their MO? Hey, I'm a fellow researcher from a think tank. Or I'm a journalist looking for information on the Middle East. Can you help? That's the best way to do it because rapport is hard to build over internet communication, but you can have a little bit of rapport instantly if it appears that you're a part of the same circles. Which, when you kind of think about it, is pretty smart. Oh yeah, the threat actors are smart. They know what they're doing. So why pick on Masa Ali Mardani? Well, Sherrod says they were probably less interested in her research about internet freedom in Iran and more interested in her contacts with people both inside and outside the country, especially given the current protests. Masa, for her part, decided to turn the tables on whomever was fishing her. 
Um, and um, I, I was insisting that they get on like my Zoom link to chat because I just wanted to see who they were. No surprise, they refused. They, they eventually stopped responding to me because I was annoying them so much. Ha, take that, kitty. I'm Sean Powers, and this is Click Here. Yo, on the mark. Here are some of the big cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. Hackers linked to China targeted the networks of U.S. state legislatures back in July, according to a new report from Symantec. Its Threat Hunter team said a long-standing Chinese hacker group known for hacking a roster of industries to pick up intelligence took aim at networks that both lawmakers and state employees had access to. The hacking group is known by some cybersecurity companies as Emissary Panda, and it has been around since about 2013. Symantec wouldn't say exactly who was targeted in the attack, but they did mention that this was the first time in years that the group has taken aim at the U.S. The White House announced plans to beef up baseline cybersecurity on three more critical infrastructure sectors, communications, water, and healthcare networks. The move, announced on Thursday by White House Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger, is part of the Biden administration's effort to seal gaps in the nation's infrastructure in the wake of the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline. And finally, on Friday, Microsoft revealed details of a coordinated ransomware campaign against the transportation and logistics sectors in Ukraine and Poland. The company's threat intelligence center said it observed malware was being used in a roster of attacks that all occurred within an hour of each other. Notes left on victim devices dubbed the malware prestige ransomware. Microsoft hasn't attributed the attacks to any known threat actor, but the company did say the destructive wipers used by prestige have some similarities with other attacks targeting Ukraine since the Russian invasion in February. Microsoft said the attackers had already gained a high level of access on the targeted networks. They still don't know how they got in. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors. Darren Ancrum is our fact checker. And Ben Levingston composed our theme. Kendra Hanna is our intern. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And connect with us by email at clickhereatrecordedfuture.com or on our website at clickhereshow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.